Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOMA. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We move feedback to the front of the program. The reason that we did that is we want to make sure that we set aside time for it. That involves you as a listener uh, participating in this process. So if you have a question, uh, email it to live at asknoahshow.com. You can do that during the show. You can do that after the show. You can do that throughout the week. You can do that and follow up to a question uh, that somebody else asked on a show, which is precisely what our first email uh, from Dave did. So Dave writes in to follow up on episode 212. He says, I have an update on this. This is referring to uh, Bluetooth audio. He says, I decided to buy a USB Bluetooth audio dongle. The reason was to get it working properly on Linux. Instead, it's because I want to share my Bluetooth headset with three computers and it supports only two. I decided to go with the Aventry DG80. And he has a link to Aventry's website, which we'll have included for you in the show notes. I purchased it directly from Aventry because Amazon was out of stock and I get an extended warranty to two years. The device supports aptX and aptX low latency, as well as HSP for the microphone. They also support a technology called FastStream, which appears to be their own Bluetooth audio standard to support high bitrate audio and voice simultaneously. The only headset that supports it appear to be their own. I used I have used the device uh, for many work meetings on a non-Linux computer. On my Linux computer, I tried, uh, is it uh, Paracord, and it worked fine. I also tried to go into Jitsi meeting to see if the auto switching to the microphone worked. Otherwise, there's a hardware button to toggle between audio and microphone mode. I took some initial notes about it, and I will let you know more as I continue to use it. But so far, I've only used it for a few days. Here are my takeaways. First, the plug-in. Play and pause Bluetooth on the headset uh, plays and pauses. Uh, the volume buttons do not change the volume on Linux, but change the volume on the device itself. It shows up as an Aventry DG80 in volume mixer. As far as the audio quality goes, the sound is clear. And when in microphone mode, I tried to record with Paracord and it seemed to work just fine. I opened a Jitsi page and it switched to the recording mode. When I closed the window, it switched back. I can tell by the blinking lights. Now, on to the downsides. It's not a Type C. Uh, also, you need another dongle. The volume issues are in microphone mode, seem to not work quite right, and but they seem to be affixed by adjusting the application volume uh, for the device. Thanks for all you do for the show, Dave. So thanks, Dave. We, uh, we've continually heard great things about the Aventry devices and their support and, and functionality under Linux, so I'm glad to see that the, uh, the DG, uh, was it DG80 uh, works great under Linux. And uh, I appreciate you writing in to, to let us know. We'll have a link for you, more information about the DG80 uh, in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in today from Ryan. Ryan writes in, Hi, Noah. I'll try to, be con uh, uh, to, try to condense this as best as possible. 
About a year ago, I acquired a rack of three Behringer UltraGain Pro 8 preamps due to my home church closing. I had the fortune of learning how to record with them and was able to record a few years worth of services before the doors were shut. And while I realized from experience that these are not high-end preamps by any means, I'd still like to be able to use them for some rough home recording since this is a pretty sentimental set of gear. The problem I'm running into is I'm trying to get everything into Reaper under Ubuntu Mate 2004 using an RME Hammerfall Digiface DSP and included PCI card. I'm having trouble figuring out the setup of things, specifically how to configure Jack. Do you have any advice on getting this up and running, or am I better off going with a different route for hardware? I've got a first-gen Scarlett 2i2, and that works out of the box, so I don't know if I'm overcomplicating things. If there's more going on that I'm not aware of, I'd prefer to keep using Reaper since it's what I'm most familiar with, but if there's a better alternative, I'm all ears. I know you're a studio guy yourself, so I figured if anyone could help me, uh, you'd be my best bet. Thanks in advance for your help. I appreciate the help, Ryan. So I'll step through a couple of things. So first of all, uh, for those of you who maybe aren't aware, the idea of a microphone preamp is that we take a traditional low-level device that, it, that doesn't produce a lot of volume, like a microphone, uh, particularly like a dynamic microphone, and we add volume to that or add, add, increase the audio level of that device before we send it to the rest of our capture device. Now, in a poor quality preamp, it would just simply amplify the microphone, and with that would come all of the noise that the microphone introduces, and so you would have a very noisy but louder signal, um, which isn't ideal. So high-end preamps make their money in their ability to increase the level of the microphone and actually increase the quality of the sound of the of the microphone. A lot of people think that when they set out to look for a microphone preamp, what they're really trying to do is replicate uh, perfect sound. And, and certainly, in the case of, um, you know, uh, a DPA, some of those microphones that are used for reference purposes, where you're actually trying to measure the frequency response of a speaker or a subwoofer or the frequency response in a room, that may be appropriate. But oftentimes, when you're picking out a microphone for voice, what you're really trying to do is find a microphone that really complements the voice and makes your voice sound better through the microphone than it would ordinarily. And so you're right, the Ultra Gain Pro Amp uh, 8 is, it's it's not a top shelf microphone preamp. In fact, nothing from Derringer would be described as, as top shelf. However, I'll say this much, I've owned a, a, a substantial amount of Behringer gear in my life. And does it fail? Yes. It, what, but when you send it back into the company and say, this is what broke, it usually comes back fixed. And you usually require a fifth of the budget or less than you would for whatever the next alternative is. And so for all of those reasons, if you take good care of it and you treat it well, um, there are plenty of professional recordings that have used Behringer gear uh, and, and they sound just fine. And, and, and the UltraGain Pro, uh, Pro 8 is, is no exception to that. So that is, a totally separate, is, is totally separate from the actual capturing of the device. So for that, you're using the RME Hammerfall. Now, there are only a handful of companies that produce high-end uh, digital-to-audio converters, audio interfaces, and RME is certainly one of them that work natively with Linux. So actually, I would say, are you using the right piece of gear? Yeah, I would say you're probably starting out um, near the top. RME is typically makes higher-end stuff than, uh, than your focus rights and presonuses of the world, although all of them uh, generally will work in Linux out of the box. As to how to configure Jack, so I don't use Jack in the studio here. I use a different audio over IP or a different... Um, 
way of mixing audio streams together. Uh, it's from a company called Telos, and it's the Axia system. Works flawlessly under Linux, but um, it, it's not Jack. Uh, for for if if I was going to go about the process of setting up Jack, I would suggest you take take a look at my friends over at Jupiter Broadcasting. They have um, a GitHub repository and a project called Git Jacked. And the idea there was that Chris and Wes were trying to set up a system in where they could utilize all of the advantages of Jack to do individual multi-track recording. And so they're not using an RME interface. So as far as I understand, they're using uh, they're still using a Behringer interface. But the process in Jack is going to be quite similar. And so they've automated the process of getting all of this set up. And so the project is available on GitHub.com, uh, and the project's called Git Jack. And so I'll have a link for you in the show notes now. If you weren't stuck on Jack, if you said, hey, I might be willing to try something else or I might be able to think outside the box, one of the things I might consider doing is taking a look at Pipewire. And the reason that I might like take a look at Pipewire if I woke up in your shoes is because Pipewire is literally the 2021 answer to the question that you're asking. You're not the only one that has sat down in, in front of a Linux workstation and said to themselves, self, I would like to do more professional audio, but I need more tools and knobs and levers available to me than exists with the standard volume control panel. And how do I do that? And, and that's that's precisely the answer that, that Pipewire is there to to facilitate and, and you've you really hit the golden time because Pipewire we're gonna get to in I think two, if not three articles uh, coming up in the, in the latter half of the show. Pipewire is being rolled out in all sorts of places to include Fedora Workstation. And so if you were to go download the latest version of Fedora Workstation, be running Pipewire, and you could actually give that a drive without having to necessarily set anything up from scratch. You'd be able to start from, from, a, from, from a working model and, and move your way forward. Um, but either way, uh, whatever you choose, your, your, you, you ask if there's a different hardware approach. The only other thing that you might consider doing is you, you might consider using uh, individual USB audio interfaces. So, for example, if you, if you eventually get to the point where you just give up and say, okay, I can't get this RME interface to work, um, or maybe you find out that uh, there's just no way to get that interface to work under Linux. One of the things I've done, and I've done this in Reaper, and I've done it in Audacity, you can simply plug multiple USB audio devices into a single host and they will uh, they will uh, display themselves and then you can select a individual track and say you're taking audio from this interface and you're taking audio from that interface and you could achieve a multi-track recording scenario that way as well. I should probably point out just for the sake of completion that Scarlett does make a uh, eight channel um, audio interface and so that might be something to consider uh, as well. But uh, whatever you do, Please write me back at live at asknoahshow.com. Let me know how it worked out. I would love to hear how you got uh, how you got your setup working and what steps you did to, to make that happen. Our third email comes in from Dacula. Dacula writes in and says, Hi, Noah. Thanks again for all you do for the pros and the amateurs like me out there in the community over all the years. I dabble with running several servers on my local LAN and expose a couple of them to the Internet, such as Nextcloud. Obviously, I have to ensure that all connections to the servers, especially outside-facing servers, are secured with HTTPS. For years, I've followed an excellent guide over on jamielinux.com that walks me through exactly how to create my own certificate authority and to produce server certificates for various servers. The guide is great because it explains what you are doing and the step-by-step, -step, not just how to do it. I feel uh, I did my homework and I know the bare basics of this guide. And so now I'm looking for an easier way to manage one's own certificate authority. Obviously, a FOSS solution would be ideal. 
perhaps something that will create a certificate authority or easily produce certificate key pairs for servers based on that certificate authority and manage the whole thing uh, simply. Thanks again for all you do. It's a highlight of my week to listen to the Ask Noah show on a long drive to work. Mike. So uh, a couple of things. So it, it actually coming up in the, in the latter half of the episode, we're going to talk a little bit about OpenShift and we're going to talk about Kubernetes and managing uh, containers. And so if you get to the end of that, uh, the end of that portion and say to yourself, hey, now, how do I solve this problem and, and how could I use my newfound skills uh, to solve this question I have? Well, Steve has an answer for you and it's cert manager you can learn more at cert dash manager dash munners dot read the docs dot io and it's a bit overkill for probably what you're looking at but cert manager is a native kubernetes certificate management controller and it can help with doing things like issuing certificates uh, from a variety of sources uh, to include things like let's encrypt and hashicorp and vault and verify uh, it also includes a simple signing key pair or you can manage self-signed keys it, uh, it'll help you ensure that certificates are valid. It'll help you ensure that certificates are up to date. And it'll also attempt to renew those certificates at a configured time before those certificates expire. So again, the project is called Cert Manager, and you will have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Check that out. See if that helps you out. Our fourth email comes in from Rodney. Rodney writes in and says, hi, Noah. I love the show. I have a NextCloud instance with 100 gigabytes uh, with a managed provider for about $2.295 Euros a month. And I'm looking to manage my own Ubuntu server and my own and my own Nextcloud instance. My only option with a digital ocean droplet is $40 a month. And the number of CPUs, RAMs, and disk space and transfer bandwidth is overkill with that plan. What am I missing with such a big difference in price? Do you have any recommendations on where to manage my own Ubuntu server and Nextcloud instance that will give me around hundred gigabytes of space at a reasonable price? I'm definitely willing to pay for the quality and performance, but the jump of 295 euros a month to $40 a month is a bit excessive. Thanks for your recommendations in advance, Rodney. So uh, I'll, I'll start here. So the first thing is when you go to DigitalOcean, um, you should look at the different ways that you can um, pick out droplets. So they have storage optimized droplets. They have CPU optimized droplets. And so depending on what you're trying to do, uh, might depend on what droplet you go with, and there, and so that would be my first thing: is look at what is what is available uh, under droplets. So you can start at five bucks a month, and you could then add block storage. And I, I, I can't do it for you here on the air, but uh, you could add block storage and figure out and say, okay, well, I want to start with this five dollar a month droplet, and then I would just want to tag on a bunch of storage um, at at ten cents per gigabyte per month. So whatever that, I guess it. What all, what all that works out to be once you have the processing that you want and memory that you want and all those things. And certainly, it's a steeper way to get charged. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, but if you wanted some other way to go about that, uh, I we hosted for a long time before we moved into our own data center, we for a long time used uh, OVH and Kim Sufi. And Kim Sufi is where, I mean... For lack of a better way to phrase this, Kim Sufi is where OVH host servers go to die after they're done being OVH servers. But you can get them really, really, really cheap. Uh, and so you you look, I think their prices on dedicated servers start maybe like five bucks a month. And that's going to get you something like 500, uh, 500 gig disk. And then I think for like $16 a month or $17 a month, 
you can go to 16 gigs of RAM and then you'd get two terabytes. So like well in excess of both of those are well in excess of what you're looking for. Um, and I'm guessing $4.99 a month uh, from, I, I don't know, the, the conversion from euros to dollars, but I'm guessing that's closer to your to your ballpark. So Kim Suvi, K-I-M-S-U-F-I. Now, should you expect blazing performance off of OVH's use? Sub, OVH is a company that has subsidized servers from the Canadian government. So the Canadian government gives this hosting company money and says, here, go provide servers. So they provide VPS services and dedicated servers for a fraction of what you'd get them anywhere else to begin with. And then on top of that, then when they recycle them and say, okay, now we're done with these servers, then they move them over to their, I don't know, less tier brand, which is Kim Sufi. And then you spin them up there. But we ran a, a, a C file instance on Kim Sufi for four or five years and never had an issue with it. We used it internally uh, for all of our stuff at UltaSpeed and had fantastic luck with it. So uh, I think they do a pretty good job and they're certainly price competitive. So I would invite you to check out Kim Sufi or I'd, you can do it through OVH proper as well. They also do uh, hosted servers. In fact, we hosted a uh, virtual host there for a while. So um, both of those hopefully are options for you. Again, phone lines, they are open throughout the hour. Your calls go to the front of the line, 855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Tony is with us from Canada. Hi, Tony. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Uh, I got a question for you. It's um, in regards to updating servers. So I know it's uh, best practice, obviously, to update servers, but sometimes I get a little bit nervous because, uh, you know, I don't want to do something and then not be able to undo it. do you have a best practice as far as like maybe being able to take a backup? Um, I'm you know specifically talking about Linux, uh, and if I have a like a Ubuntu box, um, you know that before I do the updates, I kind of want to have something almost like a snapshot that I can go back to. Yeah, if it was a VM, I'd I'd be able to just take a ZFS snapshot, but um, in this particular case, um, it's not. So yeah, so um, so let's start there. So with with VMs, um. Typically, anytime I I want to say in the last probably five years, there's not been a time when we've deployed a server on bare metal. Um, the bare metal usually is running uh, is is running a virtualization hypervisor, and then all of the actual production load is on top of it. And so, if in worst case scenario, if an update go went totally kitty wonker on a host, all we would do is move the QCOW two files to a new host, or more than likely, just blow away that host, reinstall the host operating system reinstall libvirt, move all the QCOW files back over, or actually we would just remount the NFS share where they're hosted to begin with and then spin them all back up and it would be fine. And so we take that server and kind of treat it kind of disposable-like. Um, but if you have the ho- uh, operating system installed on the host and you don't have the ability to do that, if you're not using ButterFS and you're not using ZFS, then I'm not sure how you would necessarily take a snapshot to roll back to. However... Uh, there is a certain amount of tolerance built into Linux itself for those kinds of things. So, for example, uh, one of the things you always retain the option of doing, you never replace a kernel with a newer kernel. You've just installed a newer kernel and the old ones are there. And the entire reason that the system is set up that way is so that if you do run into a problem, it's simply a function of editing Grub and going back to that older kernel and then you should be fine. Now, that obviously, that's not going to cover you with, you know, software conflicts and, and stuff like that. One package updated, but it depended on something else. And so that didn't work. Um, it's not necessarily going to save you there, uh, but but it, 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 it will at least get your system back into a bootable state that you can then go troubleshoot your way through the rest of the problem and either finish upgrading or slowly roll back packages if you had to. I, I'm sorry, that's not a great answer. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, here's, here's something else you could do. 
we set up a a, a, a server for a client there. It's a client of ours that's remote. And one of the things that they wanted to do is they said, well, we want to be able to understand how the server is set up. We want the opportunity to set the server back up ourselves in case anything ever goes wrong. So, okay, no problem. Um, but there was a problem, right? Because we set the server up. If we send it to them, they blow the thing away. Now what happens when they go to, they, they call us and say, hey, we just kidding. We tried. We got in over our heads. Now we want you to, to put it back up. We just need to use it. How do they do that? How are we going to facilitate doing that? How can we think ahead? So in, in, a, in some ways, we're approaching the same problem. We have a running server. We want to make changes to the running server. If something goes wrong, we need to be able to recover. How do we do that? And, and, and so what we did in that scenario is we actually used CloneZilla and made a CloneZilla image of the server itself. And so in the event that the, the, the client screwed the whole thing up and it, 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 it just went uh, sideways, what we would have done is plug that CloneZilla image in and booted into CloneZilla and just restored back to that image of the of the physical hardware back to when before uh, they had done whatever it is they did. Now, if you're doing updates, you know, monthly, that's probably not so bad. If you're doing that weekly or any more than weekly, that's a significant investment of time to sit there and wait for a CloneZilla image, depending on how big your hard drive is. Um, so I'm not sure that either of those are perfect solutions, but does that give you something to go off of? Uh, yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, if I can, I ask another one, if that's all right. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, if I want to install, I've been uh, playing around with uh, Libvirt and uh, installing uh, my VMs on there. If I wanted to install FreeNAS on top of Libvirt uh, because I want to have my, you know, it's just easier to manage uh, that than, you know, than than creating actual like you know, shares and what. It's just easier uh, to use FreeNAS. I want to use ZFS so that way on on the underlying OS or on the underlying file system, so I can take my snapshots for my VMs. Um, but but I know that maybe that would kind of cause a conflict because you'd have two Z ZFS systems on top of each other. You're, I'm sorry, you're kind of losing me. Uh, so you have so what what is installed on the metal itself? Is that that's free? That's uh, that's that's BSD or that's that'd be Linux? Ubuntu. Okay, so Ubuntu is the hypervisor, and then we're going to virtualize FreeNAS on top of that. Correct. And uh, Ubuntu, I'm using ZFS on Linux okay. or OpenZFS okay. um, to, uh, as, you know, as a, where all my QCOW2 images are stored. Mm -hmm. And then I use uh, Sanoid to update the, or to, uh, to take snapshots and then Syncoid to send them to another server Excellent. in the event that, you know, I need to, to, to restore them. But I know that if I have FreeNAS on top, I, I know FreeNAS wants, or sorry, ZFS wants direct access to the hard drives, but if right. I'm virtualizing it, uh, it won't... I guess, get direct access to the hard drive. Correct. So a uh, couple of things there. So you're right. In a, in a perfect world, uh, FreeNAS or ZFS will always have direct access to the disk. But it, it, is, it is somewhat of a myth that you can't virtualize FreeNAS or shouldn't virtualize FreeNAS. You can. You just have to understand what you're doing and, and, and where the pitfalls are and how to avoid them. So the problem with not having direct access to the disk is, frankly, the disks lie. And so the hypervisor may lie to the virtual host and say, uh, hey, virtual guest, the, the, the guest asks for a disk flush and the hypervisor responds and says, yep, I've done that, but it lied. It hasn't actually done that because the disk doesn't really exist. It's actually a QCOW2 file sitting on top of the disk, so why does it care, right? But in ZFS, that will fundamentally break things. And so, and, and, and actually catastrophically break things because you have run the risk of loss of data doing that. Um, so what you need to do is shut off disk caching uh, and make sure that it, that, that, um, 
that if it doesn't have direct access to the disk, that that you're shutting that off. And there's actually a a really well done guide by IX Systems that walks you through all of the things that you need to turn off or configure to virtualize FreeNAS. But then on top of that, FreeNAS is virtualized all the time in places. Um, and the other thing that you can do, and we've done this, you can you can install. Let me see if I can explain this best I can on the radio. So you have a server, you have an SSD, you install, let's say, CentOS on it, and LiveVirt's running on it, and then on top of that is FreeNAS. In your other, let's say, six drive base, you put six 10 terabyte Western Digital Reds, for example, and you add those storage devices, block level storage devices, directly to the FreeNAS guest. Now, free, if doing hardware pass-through, now free, FreeNAS does, in fact, have direct access to those disks, and you can treat it the same way. So you get all the advantages of virtualizing FreeNAS from the standpoint that when you go to update FreeNAS, you can take a snapshot in, in LibVirt, you, have, you can you know, start it up and shut it down, you're not buying two servers. All the things that we would ordinarily say are ad- advantages for virtualizing, you have the opportunity to do that, uh, you've just... You've just combined essentially two servers into one, split them over two disks, and then split up the resources as you needed them. Okay, awesome. If that, thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Uh, give me a call back if uh, if that doesn't work or you run into any problems, or if it does work, we'd love to hear about that as well. Uh, our pick of the week this week is the Calc Programmer Open RGB. So this is an open source RGB lighting control system that doesn't depend on manufacturer software. So this is to, for example, change the LED lights inside of your Asus, ASRock, Cosier, G-Skill, Gigabyte, HyperX, MSI, Razer, Thermaltake keyboard, and they have a number of other models that are supported as well. It's a completely open source program. They are on release 0.6, so it's a fairly new piece of software, but this is obviously becoming more and more popular. People are buying these keyboards, and it's nice when they light up, but it's even cooler when you have some control over them. So why not do that with a completely open source program? The program's called OpenRGB. It's put up by Kelk Programmer. We'll have a link to the GitLab repository in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is... The RugTech, R-U-G-G-T-E-K, R-U-G-G-T-E-K.com. It's the rugged Linux tablet for a wide range of embedded applications in any environment that fieldwork can bring. So this gets you a 10.1-inch display at 1920 by 1200, a capacitive touchscreen, an Intel quad-core CPU, 4 gigabytes, uh, up to 64 gigabytes of memory. And get this, they ship it stock with Ubuntu, Fedora, or OpenSUSE. Take your pick. Now, any of you who have followed the show for any length of time know that I have been constantly searching for a companion device. I have accepted the fact that I have to have iOS or Android to function in the day-to-day world, but I don't want to put the vast majority, the heft of my data, the the, the bulk of what I, I care about and am doing, I don't want to put it on that device. And so I've constantly been searching for another device. So far, the closest I've found is, is things like Sailfish and... Um, and KDE Plasma Mobile is getting there. But RugTech makes the RPL550. What is the RPL550, you ask? Well, it's a Linux smart handheld terminal that can handle any working environment. So this gets you a 5.5-inch resolution 1080 by 1920 display, capacitive touchscreen, again, Intel quad-core. You get anywhere from 4 to 64 gigs of RAM, and again, it ships with Ubuntu, Fedora, or OpenSUSE. Quote, the pocket-friendly design, high-grade toughness, and Linux OS means you can take it anywhere without getting damaged in the water or from everyday drops. With a PDA Linux by RugTech, you have one less thing to worry about. The handheld 
has two integrated USB ports that allow for the tablet to connect USB flash drive, digital cameras, keyboards, and many other devices, as well as a user-accessible micro SD slot to extend the storage. The terminal built-in 1D slash 2D barcode scanner with a dedicated scan button and near-field communication NFC option available. Again, the device is called the RugTech RPL550, as well as the tablet, which is the RugTech RTL310. Both of them are available at RugTech.com, R-U-G-G-T-E-K. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Containers are the future, or so I'm told by the people that work with them every day. Now, when I was working in system administration, uh, I remember when we moved to virtualization, and I remember thinking how powerful that was going to be and how many options and flexibility was going to come into existence for a lot of clients. And indeed, that has turned out to be the case. But as I continue to talk to people that work heavily in containerized technology and work with containerized technology, um, the message is clear that that is the way that future services are going. So I've invited Steve Ovens uh, back. Steve, welcome back to the program. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for, for being here. So I understand uh, containers and, and specifically OpenShift is something that you deal with uh, day in and day out. So who better um, to address some of these things? So I want to start here, Steve. Can you tell me a little bit about what container technology is? Maybe somebody has heard of containers. They've heard of Kubernetes. What really is containerization and, and why is it so powerful? So containerization is a way to isolate a specific process on your system. In the most basic sense, it uses Linux namespaces in conjunction with C groups in order to make sure that when you launch a process, it is completely confined on your system. If you want to know a little bit more about either C groups or Linux namespaces, I know that we've uh, spoken on the NAS NOAA show previously about that, and I also do some uh, writing on the Red Hat uh, blog about different technologies like this. And these container techn or these like C groups, for example, the namespaces, these are functions of the Linux kernel. They're features that were introduced into the Linux kernel some years ago, and we can leverage those features and technology then to create containers. That's correct. Okay, so I want to get started with container technology. I maybe have heard some some terms, you know, LXD containers, uh, Podman, Scopio. What are, where is the starting place? Where should somebody start to kind of get their, their head wrapped around the concept of containers and, and what might be some good first projects to, to spin up? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess, first of all, there are two different types of containerization as a general rule. You've got the system level containerization, which is more akin to what a VM does for us today. So LXD is much more akin to a system level where it may give you, for example, an Ubuntu in a box or, you know, a Fedora in a box or, or whatever, where you download, a, you know, a, an image that has several hundred megs and you can exec into the container and launch services and do all that kind of stuff. Then on the other hand, there are application level um, containers, and these are what most of the businesses are interested in because this is the type of container you'll find in the platform called Kubernetes. And I'm sure that people have heard of Kubernetes, they may not know much about it, but it's a way to kind of orchestrate things. So when you think about 
containers, application containers, the biggest name out there has been Docker. But as things move forward, you had mentioned something called Podman. Podman grew out of Docker because Docker was a daemon that ran as root on your system. And as more and more adoption of containers has happened, the security-minded folks have decided that we're not so comfortable with running a daemon with root privileges that also controls the containers. So Podman was born of a desire for a more modern way to run containers. Are there any operating systems or distributions that are specifically, uh, if not tailored to run container technology, are there any operating systems that make it an easy on-ramp for someone to get started with container technology? So there's a couple that Red Hat has that are designed just for this kind of purpose. So there's one that's called Fedora CoreOS. And as you can imagine, this is based on Fedora. It's not a desktop distribution. It is a distribution specifically designed to run containers. So it ships with um, just a little bit of history. There's a technology called RPM OS tree. And this is essentially like a firmware version of everything that runs on your system. So when you get an update in an RPM OS tree type system, you get a several hundred megabyte file that replaces the previous running system. And you can have a couple of these where you kind of switch between them. Whereas in a traditional Linux system, you upgrade individual packages. O RPM OS tree releases all of the packages as if you'll allow me a little bit of latitude, kind of a binary blob that goes onto your system as one whole release. The, this type of system, and Ubuntu has a server core, and you know, SUSE also has their own kind of answer to this, but the general idea is we ship exactly the binaries that are needed to run containers and nothing else, because the idea is that in this type of operating system, you will run everything in containers. So do I understand correctly then that there's nothing else needed if I just download Fedora CoreOS, I have everything on my host operating system to get started with containers? Yeah, Fedora CoreOS is born to run containers. Like that is the whole idea of it. It will be running Podman and not Docker, but it doesn't matter from the standpoint of if you just want to learn how containers work, whether you're running with Docker or whether you're running with Podman, the, the, this type of container will function basically the same. You said it's running Podman instead of Docker. Now, both Docker and Podman are supposed to be anyway. Uh, OCI compliant. Can you talk a little bit about what the OCI standard is? So I, OCI compliance, without getting into too much of it, is basically a standard that a bunch of uh, big companies like Google and Red Hat and, and several others have gotten together and decided that this is kind of the open standard that we're going to follow for handling containers. So you can have containers that are not OCI compliant. It just means that they're not following a specific standard. But if you have a, a process or an operating system or what have you that is OCI compliant, it means that you can go and look up and figure out exactly what kind of permissions that it implies, what kind of security detail does it have, all those sort of things are kind of documented inside of the, the spec, as it were, for OCI. 
So one of the things that's nice about containers is it allows developers to test their application in the environment with the environment variables that it's going to be running at in production because they've they essentially they're shipping you uh, the entire container, right? Uh, the operating system as well as all of the stuff on top of it. And so because of this, um, there's a whole host of, of, I guess, a repository library, a place that we can pull uh completed images down and just run those containers without with little to no customization uh what does that process look like and what might be a a good first one to get started with so the most well-known repository out there is the docker hub red hat has its own of course that that uh, we provide for the community to use especially for the what we call the UBI, the universal base image, which is basically a rel container that has access to a subset of Red Hat's repositories. So what that process looks like is by default, it doesn't matter whether you're running Docker or Podman or whatever, each one of these will have their own repository installed by default, which means that if you go Podman pull Nextcloud, for example, it will look for a container called Nextcloud, and if it finds it in its default repository, it will download that that container image for you. In terms of getting started, there's just a ton of information out there about doing Hello World inside of a container. I'd say the easiest one for most people to grok is to go ahead and download an Apache or some sort of web server image because you download that and every web server out there comes with a default web page. So when you turn on the service, you know that the uh, web server is responding. And that that's as simple as you can get. Is it possible to SSH into containers? And if it is, is there a reason why you wouldn't want to do that and administrate them that way? So I guess that is kind of a complex question. The answer is, yes, you can, not by default. So the, the idea largely behind application containers is you really should only have one process per container. If you go ahead and set up another process like SSH inside of the container, you kind of complicate things because the assumption is the main thread or process inside of the container is the thing that you want to be running. And so when you're doing things like a health check. So in some of these bigger environments, there's this idea of doing health checks against your pod to know if it's healthy and responding because the process could be alive on your system, but maybe the web server isn't serving or whatever. If you've got multiple threads inside of your container, it makes it kind of difficult to implement any kind of health checks or other sorts of things. So the, the best practice is only using one application per container. Now there is a, a different way to get in, which is called execing into a container. So both Docker and Podman have a way to attach to the running process, which kind of feels like an SSH, um, but it is like you wouldn't be able to just pull up, you know, any random terminal and SSH into a container by default. Is exactly the preferred and, 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 and prescribed way to go about administrating containers to get into that process and make a change or, or uh, interact with it in some way? So I guess the, the question you need to ask yourself is, 
why you are trying to get into the container in the first place. Now remember, the idea here is that containers are supposed to be immutable. The purpose of this is to be able to know that I, as the publisher of a container, can kind of guarantee that what I'm shipping you will run. If you get in there and actually try to start making changes to a container, then you break that, that kind of assumption going forward. So to answer your question, yes, you can do this. You can go in and, you know, spin up a regular Ubuntu uh, container and then apt-get install whatever it is that you want and then save the layer. But that's not the way that you're supposed to be interacting with the things. As with most things in Linux, just because you can, you can do pretty much anything you want to, but maybe you should consider why you're doing that in the first place. So the idea is we should treat them a lot more like Tupperware rather than uh, rather than the, the nice Pyrex ones. The, the containers might come and go. What we really care about is the data behind the containers that's being served through them or that it's being written to. Exactly. Okay. So we have some understandings of at least how to get started with containers. The reason that there is so much rage over containers is because automating and scaling and, and, and monitoring, um, all of these things we kind of generally categorize under the umbrella of orchestration and management. Um, what, what sorts of tools are available or what tools do you have the most experience with uh, for orchestrating and managing containers? So I work day in and day out with Red Hat's distribution of Kubernetes, which is called OpenShift. There is a, an upstream version of OpenShift called OKD, um, and you're free to run that. So the difference between the two is the OKD runs on Fedora Core OS, and the Red Hat OpenShift Enterprise Linux runs on top of Red Hat Core OS. So for myself at home, I do tend to run the upstream version of things because that is my preferred method of doing things. For for other people that are not interested in the Red Hat ecosystem, of course, there are things like Rancher and Docker Swarm and a few other, um, let's say, models that have an open source variant. And then, of course, there are competitors like Pivotal from uh, VMware and so on. So there's there are a bunch of technologies out there that allow you to kind of orchestrate containers if you want to. Okay, so I want to go and play with OKD. And um, what does the process of getting OKD up and running look like? So there's the there's a couple of different steps that you can take. If you go and look at the documentation, they give you kind of a here's a here's a one-shot command to to have this up and running on your system. And that works just fine. The way that I prefer to do it is to follow more the um, the customizable, I'd say, enterprise way of of doing an installation. So the process works like this. You you basically need to have generated SSH key, and you need to know a little bit about networking. So that's that's kind of an important piece of this puzzle. Is any one of these orchestrators? If you're doing, if you are the one doing the installation, you're going to need to know a little bit about networking. So you're going to have to understand subnets and subnet masks, and making sure that you're not going to have any traffic collision and things like that. And if you want more information in that regard, uh, Noah and I have done a couple of 
different episodes on networking in the past. But once you have an idea of what network range you're going to use, it's basically put some information inside of a YAML file and then run the installer against the YAML file. And this is administrated what, through like a web UI? Yeah, primarily you, so the my, most of my clients will use the command line. However, it does come with a, a beautiful web UI and it's both of them are treated the same because what's happening is the web UI just makes the same API calls that the command line client <clears throat> does. And so either of them is perfectly acceptable. As you go to actually do some of these administrative things, like what what is different about using OKD or OpenShift to manage containers as opposed to just using Podman at, at, at the command line? So what Kubernetes brings you, and that's that's ultimately what you're asking because we're a distribution of Kubernetes, is things like health checks and monitoring of, of containers where the idea for something like Podman is I have one system that I'm going to throw some containers on and that's all that I have. In the idea of Kubernetes, you probably have multiple different computers and Kubernetes pools all of those resources together and then shifts workloads around based on um, what kind of rules you give it in terms of this computer should have this much load or uh, you know make sure if we've got network traffic here move it over to this other computer so the orchestration allows it to kind of shift the workload around in your environment depending on what sort of stress that you have in your system at a time is it possible to scale an okd system like or openshift system let's say for example you start with a couple of containers and now you say okay but these are extraordinarily important containers and I need some way to maintain high availability. Is it possible to have like a failover server where that where it can take over the host hosting of those containers should the primary one fail? And if so, how does that work? Yeah, so the way that this is orchestrated is as long as your application doesn't have any kind of um, stateful dependency. So what, what do I mean by that? Uh, some applications actually will write to a local file system and then refer to the file to do their transactions with. If you've got that, then you're going to have a hard time with high availability because if that pod goes down, then whatever local cache it has is gone. But notwithstanding that, what what the idea behind a Kubernetes or OpenShift is, is you can tell it how many, uh, the number of a single type of pod that you want. So for example, uh, you've, you know that you're going to have a bunch of HTTP traffic coming in because it's the weekend and you, that's when you get more. You can, you can put schedules in and say, on the weekend, I need to have 10 copies of Apache running. And the system will then scale out that pod across the hardware you've given it. And then it has an internal load balancer that handles all of that work for you. So nothing external the, to the cluster has to be changed in order for you to scale your cluster out. How about dealing with data for the containers? We talked about the containers being immutable, but how do we deal with the data that sits behind it? Is does do by default do containers always have access to the entire disk? Is it usually restricted to a specific directory on the disk? Is there a standard way to store the data for containers? Is it similar to just being on the host? So if the you know if you had Apache running on the host, it would be in var slash www slash html. So that's still the data directory, even though we've containerized the process. How does that work? So containers by default are ephemeral. What this means is that they will take up whatever space that they need on the disk 
on the disk while they are currently running. But as soon as the process dies, the data gets wiped off of the disk. So obviously that's not ideal except for in testing scenarios. So it's more common to, to do things like set up NFS or some other um, file server where not so much Samba, but you've got NFS or iSCSI or, you know, um, Ceph, Gluster, those types of file systems that, that provide a way for uh, systems to, to access centralized storage. That is the most common way. So anything uh, excluding Samba that allows you to do centralized storage um, access is what is recommended in order to have to make sure that data inside of containers is safe and backed up and can deal with a pod going up or down regardless of where it lives. What is the best way to connect a, uh, a, a folder or an NFS share, whatever the, the data storage place is to the container itself? When you do a definition of a deployment, which is usually done in YAML, you can actually go in and say, okay, inside of the container, you know, whatever var www actually mounts to this NFS mount. So it's actually inside of the definition of the deployment of the application where you tell it which files and which files or folders inside of the container will be backed by external storage. You talked a little bit about needing to understand networking to get started with containers. Exactly what kind of networking is involved and what sort of routing is necessary to get containers to maybe, for example, access the internet or exchange data on uh, on the actual production network that the host is connected to? It's a great question. So this is part of the big value that, that OpenShift brings over straight up Kubernetes is it brings a lot of the networking for you. So inside of OpenShift, there are two different networks that you need to be able to define. One is, like you said, the kind of the pod network that lives on side of each host. Each host needs to know what IPs can I assign to this container so that if I need to talk to it, how do I do that? Then there is another network that is for communication across the cluster so that everything can kind of communicate with itself and get out to the outside world and so on. OpenShift takes care of that for you. So all you have to do is actually give it the uh, the subnet mask. So 192.168.0.1 slash 24 is going to be for my container network and 10.10.10.0 slash 24 is going to be my other network. And that's all you have to know. You just have to know this. I'm using these. I'm not using these. So you don't want to accidentally give it an IP range that you're using on your local LAN or else you're going to have trouble with routing traffic. The host operating system is going to get an IP address on the local LAN, and then OpenShift will take care of routing traffic from our communication network across the cluster back to our production network. Is that, do I understand that right? Yeah, so it tunnels inside of the, the network that the VMs live on, well, VMs, hardware, whatever, however you are doing your hosts. Like you said, they get their IPs from DHCP or, or statically set, and then one of those networks that I was referring to earlier, kind of it piggybacks on that network inside of it so that anything in the inside of the cluster can communicate, but nothing outside of the cluster can hit into the cluster. Mm. What if I want traffic to come into the cluster? So for example, I've set up a, 
containerized web server and I want that web server to be publicly accessible with a public IP address. What does that process look like? So containers in this context rely on routing the um, host names. So you're, it, there's this idea of a service and every service should have a like a www.myservice.com will bring you to a certain thing. So uh, let me back up. It's if you're familiar with the old way of doing vhosts in Apache, where you are giving a name and that name is going to a specific application that you're serving in Apache, this works the same way. So you, you basically, when you're defining your application, you give it a URL so that you know, if I type this URL, I'm going to get this application. What happens in behind the scenes is you make a wildcard DNS entry saying, you know, whatever the standard is, apps, star.apps.mycompany.com. And anytime that you get a star.apps uh, URL request, it will send it to OpenShift and OpenShift figures out where to send it based on what name you've given it past that. So if I was to say nextcloud.apps.mycompany.com, that automatically gets forwarded to OpenShift because of the wildcard DNS. And then OpenShift says, oh, I know which application Nextcloud is and sends it to the correct container. Steve, if people want to learn more about OpenShift and OKD and they've, they've gotten their, their, they got their feet wet and they've said, all right, I want to dig further, where can people go to learn more? So for OKD, you can go to docs.okd.io and uh, the documentation there is, is really good. If you're looking for just general information about, you know, how containers work and um, kind of getting your feet wet with Docker and maybe an introduction to Kubernetes in general, there's a website called katacoda.com and that'll be in the show notes. And that that will give you an inside your browser access to kind of poking at these technologies from a 101 point of view. Steve Evans, thanks so much for coming on and, and discussing OpenShift, giving us a taste of containers. Uh, you know you always have a welcome invitation on the program. We'll get you back real soon. Thanks, Noah. Just a couple minutes left in the hour. We'll round out with a couple of news stories. Uh, we'll cover these lightly. Facefish, it contains two parts. Uh, dropper and rootkit. So this is one of the latest vulnerabilities that has come out. It does affect Linux systems. The main function is determined by the rootkit module, which works at the ring three layer and is loaded using LD underscore preload feature to steal the user's login credentials by hooking into the SSH or SSHD uh, program related functions. Now the back, the back door can upload device information, steal user credentials, bounce a shell, uh, or even execute binary commands. Quote, the malware uses a specific vulnerability for its successful distribution, but that has not yet been disclosed. It should be noted that NetLab's analysis has been based on the April's report by Juniper Networks, and the report revealed details about an attack chain targeting the control web panel, also known as a CWP, to inject SSH implant with data exfiltration functionalities. In terms of FaceFish's infection mechanisms, the malware goes through several stages initiated by a command injection against CWP to retrieve a dropper from a remote server. The next step is enabling the rootkit 
to collect and transmit sensitive information to the server while we wait on further instructions for the command and control infrastructure. You can read more at netlab.360.com. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. But if if you're one of the people that work in security, then you want to be aware of that. Hey, the music in my ears means we're out of time. But as you might guess, there's plenty of content that I just didn't get to. We give all that content to you by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references that I use to prepare and produce the show. If we didn't get to it, it's still in the show anyway. And so there's a whole bunch of content there. Check it out, asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. Hold up. 